But just as inflation has started to creep up, then the interest rate on these has boomed higher. It's now paying 9.6%. And what's amazing about that is, one, it's a guaranteed investment. These things are backed by the full faith and credit of the United States Treasury. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show, where today we have on Joseph Hogue talking about I-bonds, the latest craze. But before we do that, let me check in with my co-host, Justin. What is going on, man? Hey, Cody. Well, me and my team just wrapped up the at my normal job, just wrapped the first of our fiscal half. So it's kind of like a, a big thing, getting a lot of deals in. So to celebrate, I kind of wanted to go out and do something. So we went out and hung with some friends we haven't seen in a while. We actually did this thing. It's like a, a, a really intense VR headset kind of situation where you've got like fake weapons and all that sort of thing, but you're in this room together as a team and you're in this super realistic world and they actually send you videos afterwards. So you can kind of see how everybody's reacting, even though you're obviously just in a blank room, it feels like you're immersed in this kind of like zombie haunted house. So we did that. And then also with the same friends, they've never been out on rainy street, which if you're not familiar, is kind of like this kind of famous little strip of, of bars that look like little houses next to downtown Austin. And so we went down there after that. And then we went down for Leslie's sister to visit her. Um, she just had a new baby. So welcoming that new member to the family. And that was about it, Cody. How about you? So we actually had two of our friends who live out in the Cape for most of the summer, Tommy and Serena, come and visit and stay with us at the lake house. And fortunately, we had good weather all weekend. And so we hung out, we went on the boat, actually got to meet some cousins for a short stint on Saturday who I've never met before. They're from Colorado. I think they're like my dad's first cousins or second cousins, kids. I'm not even exactly sure how the lineage works out, but never met them before. But we had an awesome day hanging out and playing with them. But overall, it was just a fun lake weekend with friends and family. Something I did want to mention, because actually one of my friends had brought this up to me, they didn't even know we had a YouTube channel. So for those of you who like to consume content via video and audio, I know a lot of you listeners are probably on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or one of the other podcast listening platforms. But Justin and I have also been putting most of our episodes on YouTube with guests. So if you want to check us out, just search The Fi Show on YouTube. It is a little rougher edits than the podcast. So you might see a couple mess ups. You might see some funny stuff. So if you want to go check us out, subscribe to us on there. We would love to have you. But alrighty, Justin, let's get into the guest for today, Joseph Hogue. And the, the reason why we brought Joseph on was because he's a prolific YouTuber and a couple of his videos had really gone in depth on iBonds. And for those of you who hang out in the personal finance community on Facebook or Twitter or just watch the news or whatever, iBonds are getting talked about everywhere. So we get to, I mean, we just absolutely grill Joseph with questions for like 25 minutes, getting really deep into the nuances of what iBonds are, should you invest in them, some really high level strategies and some cool ways that you might be able to get over the $10,000 limit that each citizen of the US has imposed on them. We get into a ton of fun stuff here and we had an absolute blast talking with Joseph. Yeah, Cody, a couple of months ago, I just saw all the chatter about I-bonds really blowing up and I had never even heard about it before. And I would consider myself somebody like, you know, pretty in depth and first in everything with the financial markets. But Joseph knows this stuff in and out. We talk about how these rates are set. We're talking currently making almost 10% guaranteed returns on a bond that's backed by the U.S. government. Pretty interesting stuff. And it just goes along with this general theme that we've been talking about lately, which is focusing a little bit more on the market that we're in with all this inflation and a bear market that we're not really used to. 
So if you're interested in learning how you could invest in I-bonds, or if it makes sense for you, or maybe you know someone who's been talking about it that wanted a little bit more information, you could share this episode with them and find all the notes over at thefyshow.com slash I-bonds. That's thefyshow.com slash I-B-O-N-D-S. Yeah, you know, got out of college after the Marine Corps and jumped right into investment analysis, right? Love that idea of making money off my money, right? So who doesn't love that? Got into venture capital, investment analysis, private wealth management, and that kind of thing. And then pretty soon realized that I wanted my own business. So I started blogs, started the YouTube channel, and it's just been great being able to bring that information that I used to use only for the 1%, right? In venture capital and private wealth management for regular investors. So that's really what I've been doing over the last 15 years, really, is working in equity analysis and wealth management. So was it really just that quick of a switch? Like you just get out of the Marine Corps, you get into <laughs> equity analysis. Like what was going on while you were in the Marine Corps that made you think you'd go this way? Or was there this period of time after you got out where you had to do a lot of soul searching? I mean, that seems like a large transition all of a sudden. It was a transition. It mostly happened kind of during college and an internship I did with a commercial real estate manager. So I was a commercial real estate property analyst for about a year there during college. And during the Marine Corps, I was an armorer. So I fixed small arms and weapons and not much you can do after you get out of the Marine Corps with that unless you want to be another armorer. So yeah, I knew I had to do something. Went to college, got degrees in finance and communication studies. And yeah, through that internship, really discovered that love of investment analysis and being able to find ways to use your money to make more money. And at what point did you start to become a content creator? Because that's a bit different than what you're talking yeah. about where you know, you're serving the 1% versus serving the many. And in fact, I spent all this time studying and learning how to analyze stocks and that kind of thing. Got my charter financial analyst designation in 2011, years working equity analysis. And now I'm a little bit more at that content side and actually kind of kind of the, fi- the communication studies part of my education rather than the finance. Again, I was working equity analysis. I was working as an economist for the state of Iowa for a while. And I realized I was always working for someone else. While I had some control over my future career path, you know, how successful I was, there was always that limit to what were the average raises you know, in the office? What were the average bonus pool in the office? That kind of thing. And I just wanted more control than that. right? I wanted to be able to control how hard I worked meant how successful I could become. So this was uh, right around 2013, 2014. Of course, they were saying blogging was dead at this point. So I jumped right into blogging because that's just how I am, I guess. And really enjoyed it. I enjoyed that content strategy and, and reaching as many people as possible. 2017, I started using YouTube really to post videos on there. And I love that face-to-face feel you get with the community and the way you're able to build a community on YouTube. So that's really how it's grown from really being kind of that numbers nerd equity analysis side to really being much more of a personality and that content kind of focus. I would never call you a numbers nerd, a money nerd. <laughs> nerd and proud, right? So you've done this like super deep analysis for years and you know, you're just so versed in it. And then you take yourself out of that kind of bubble. And now you're talking about, again, like talking to the broader public. What sure. was something that really jumped out to you where you're like, I did not realize this was such a blind spot for everyone. Like no one knows how this specific things works. Like, is there like a really good example that just shocked you that people don't get? Really, you know, a lot of just kind of how the market works, uh, you know, how to how to look at investments. I see so many investors, especially over the last couple of years, right, where stocks only went up during the pandemic and everybody was making money. Everybody was an expert, right? So many people that have started investing over the last couple of years, their sole analysis, we'll say, so analysis in quotes, I guess, on a stock is what's the stock chart look like? 
has it been going up? And if it has, then that's a good investment. And of course, you know, it's a horrible way to pick your stocks because those stocks that get on that momentum kick always tend to fall the hardest in a crash. And of course, that's what we've seen over this last year is those growth, those momentum stocks have fallen 60, 70, 80%. Well, you know, some of the stronger quality stocks like value stocks, dividends, things like that have actually fared much better. Well, one of the main reasons we have you here today is because you are one of the most prolific posters on YouTube I've ever seen. And you're just like crushing it covering current topics with your YouTube channel, Let's Talk Money with Joseph Hogue. And something I have just seen day in and day out on financial media, all of our Facebook groups, wherever I'm hanging out, where personal finance people are hanging out is iBonds. So can we start to dive in and just give us the really high 30,000 foot view? What are I-bonds? Well, these things just came out of nowhere, right? They've actually been around since 1998, but nobody ever paid attention to them because they've never really paid very much, right? They are savings bonds issued by the US Treasury. And so just like savings bonds, they have a rate, a yield that they pay out, kind of like an interest rate. What's different about these is they adjust every six months depending on consumer inflation. Right. So since inflation was really been non-existent over the last 10, 20 years, even then nobody's paid attention to them. But just as inflation has started to creep up, then the interest rate on these has boomed higher. It's now paying 9.6%. And what's amazing about that is one, it's a guaranteed investment. These things are backed by the full faith and credit of the United States Treasury. And of course, there's going to be some eye rolls out there, but if the government ever stops paying its savings bonds, we got a lot more to worry about than just the return on investments. Okay. So it is a guaranteed 9.6% interest rate. That'll go until November. It resets May and November of each year. Again, resets for that inflation. But inflation is so high now and probably going to be so persistent. Then even if that comes down a little bit to 8%, 7.5%, that's still an excellent return for a guaranteed investment. Right Now, one thing is like savings bonds, all savings bonds, your money is locked up in these for a one-year period. And if you sell within five years, then you give up like three months worth of interest. Right. Well, one, three months of interest isn't going to matter much if you're making almost 10% a year on these things. But two, we're going to need that protection from the stock market for more than a year, right? So these things are just really the right place at the right time, offering investors that guaranteed return on their money. So it's an alternative to stocks that are falling 20% so far this year, as well as you know that high yield, that 9.6% interest. I think... You know, everyone would love to have plenty of investments that can return guaranteed, you know, nine, 10% returns. So I guess, what are the limits? Like, why can't I just go and invest, you know, all my money in this and make sure that I'm getting 10% in a market that's going down? Like, why not put 200 grand at this thing? Sure. And it definitely seems too good to be true, right? And there are some limits. You know, you are limited to $10,000 you can invest each year, right? And that's $10,000 per anyone with a social security number, right? So I've got a family of four, my wife, two kids. I can invest $10,000 for each of them. You can gift $10,000 to someone. So that $10,000 limit really isn't a problem for too many people, right? You can save quite a bit of money in these. That is a limit, $10,000 per year for each person. That lockup period kind of scares a lot of people. You know, one year where you can't sell them and then you give up the three months of interest if you sell within five years. But again, 10% return for at least a year and longer. That's a great return. There is the potential for that interest rate to go down though. As I said, these adjust every six months depending on the level of inflation in the market. But again, even if you're late to the party on these, inflation is going to be high for the next several years, I think. You're not going to find a better bond investment, a better guaranteed fixed interest investment or fixed income investment that is paying these kinds of returns. 
And so do all I-bonds move in unison? Like when you say they reset every May and every November, like every single I-bond that's in issuance is now at 9.6%. So if there was someone who, for example, was just like so bullish on I-bonds for whatever reason, they've been buying 10K every year since 98. They have like 240,000 in I-bonds. They'd be getting paid 9.6% on the entirety of that investment. No, there is a slight difference. That 9.6% is only for new ones, new I-bonds, the current rate. The thing with I-bonds is they have really two rates or two parts of the rate that they go together to form that that 9.6%. One is, is kind of a fixed rate, which has been basically zero all the way back many years. The other is the inflation component, right? So when you buy your I-bond, then that fixed rate is, is set in stone. That's what you get for the life of the bond up to these things pay out up to 30 years. Then that inflation adjustment, that inflation component, that's what changes. So generally, since that fixed rate part of the bond isn't very much, you know, it might be half a percent or, or even less, you know, a quarter of a percent or less, then it really doesn't factor in much. So really, it's the inflation adjustment that that is really controlling how much these pay. So even if you've held your I bonds for a few years, those are now going to be getting very very strong returns as well. So nine point six percent returns, things like that. Awesome. So like Cody said, you know, you could have been buying these $10,000 at a time, maybe for multiple family members over the course of the last 10 years. And now you find yourself in a position to where you're holding a ton of these things are all paying the 9.6%. Very close. Yeah. And I'm curious, though, like you're making that income. If you do decide, okay, like I've, I've held these long enough, I'm ready to get out of them for whatever reason, even though now is probably the best time to have them. And you did sell them. How do the taxes work? Is it sure. the same you know, do you have short term, long term? Is it the same as a stock? Sure. And that's actually another one of the benefits of these. There are so many benefits. I kind of I kind of forget uh, to list them all out at the first. A lot of savings bonds or bonds, they don't pay that interest every six months. They just accrue it to the bond, right? So you might invest 10000 every month. You get a little bit more of that interest applied onto your bond and that money grows. And what's great about that is it just accrues more interest on that interest. So it's really a compounding interest investment. So you're not paying any taxes or anything on while you own the, the I-bond because you're not collecting any income. When you do sell it, then it is free from state and local taxes. Most bonds, you're going to have to pay those state and local taxes on capital gains and things like that. But with I-bonds, you only pay the federal income tax. And since you do have to hold them for at least a year, it's going to be that capital gains rate. And so where do you actually purchase these I-bonds? Is it something that you can go into your brokerage account? You can go into your IRA, your 401k, or where is the actual platform where this transaction is happening? Sure. Great question on the IRA because I hear that one more than anything. These are only available through the US Treasury. So the Treasury has a website called treasury.gov. You open an account directly on there and buy them directly from the Treasury. That's great because it means no fees, no commissions. Whatever you put into these, 1000 2000 whatever, it goes right into your I-bonds. So you can invest that 10000 directly into your I-bonds. It stays right there on the US Treasury's account and keeps on collecting that interest. Now, that also means though that you're not able to invest in an IRA or a retirement account because it is in that one single account. Though I'm not sure you'd really want to anyway, right? Because if you had it in a retirement account, you would kind of miss out on that tax benefit of not paying the state and local taxes, right? So invest these just as you would a regular account on that treasury.gov. Use your retirement accounts for those dividend stocks, those income investments where, where you'd have to pay federal and state taxes. Since we're on the topic of gains and what would happen if you actually did get those gains and, and realize them and thinking about the taxes you would pay on them, you know, I know with stocks, like you've got your cost basis. And then if I have the stock and then I pass away and leave it to someone else, like that cost basis gets bumped up. You don't have to owe taxes on that gain for the beneficiary. Is that true with a bond or does it work differently? That's interesting. I actually haven't 
found that question yet. So I'd have to check into that. Obviously, since these are shorter term, they're fixed life of 30 years or less, then you don't run quite into it as you would uh, some others, but it's definitely going to happen. I can't assume that it would be the same as other investments where it would, the cost basis would be marked up. I think that's probably going to be the case since, since it is with everything else. Now, when it comes to eligibility, I know you mentioned you just have to have a social security number, but you know, like a traditional IRA, for example, there might be income limits. Is that something or you know, maybe it's not income limits, but maybe there's some other factor that makes you ineligible to purchase these I-bonds? Nope. There's that $10,000 limit. So that acts as kind of a limit to uh, how much any one person can use on these. Obviously, those larger investors that might be have income limits on, on other investments, those high net worth individuals, it's not going to be as beneficial to them because you know how much is $10,000 on 10% protecting them from the market uh, going to really matter to them versus someone that you know might have 100000 or, or 50000 in the market. So with these interest rates you mentioned, they kind of reevaluate every six months. So does that mean like this nine point, if it's 9.6 today, like when does that change? When is those six month periods? Is it the same every year so that people can know like, hey, if I want to get in this, I need to get in it before X date? Sure, sure. Yes, it's the same day every year. It's uh, May 1st and November 1st that those reset, those rates reset. I think November, I want to say November, but it might be uh, October, six months, right? Six months from May 1st, I believe is November. Resets, same every year. And there's really no need to really time it because, yeah, like I said, you're going to be getting that high interest rate until the reset, and then you're going to be getting whatever whatever you get after that as well. So I know another popular question is, is should I buy now or should I wait for that reset? And there's really no benefit to waiting. So I know before you mentioned that an easy way to get around the income limit, or sorry, the contribution limit or how much you can buy is to have, like, say, a spouse or a child. How does that work logistically? Like I know... Is gift 14 or 15 grand this year? I'm actually not exactly sure. I'm sure you know better than me, Joseph. It's really surprisingly easy, actually. You can actually gift somebody up to their limit, right? So when you gift somebody some I-bonds on that treasury.gov site, then that goes against their limit, right? So I could do 10,000 of my own. I gifted my wife 10,000, gifted our kids 10,000 each. And now that goes under a separate account for them. But if you're depositing from your bank account, right, then when those are redeemed, that's going to go straight back to your bank account, right? So it's really kind of a sneaky way of you keeping control of the money, but you're still getting around those income limits. You can also do another 10,000. So there is a 10,000 limit on any business with an EIN, right? So an employee identification number, kind of a tax number for businesses. So if you're like myself, I have my online business under an LLC that has that EIN, I can also put $10,000 towards that as well. All right. So now we're talking because you don't even need to spend money to open an EIN. I'm sure we know we're not telling anybody to game the system here, but I mean, opening an EIN isn't difficult. It's a lot easier than say opening an LLC. Like literally I'm in Massachusetts. I could just go on the state website and open an EIN in 10 minutes. It's pretty straightforward. So this is totally different going back to the gifting stuff though. This is different than like the, I don't know if it's 14 or $15,000 like gift limit of just like straight cash that you can give someone. This is outside of that you're talking about with the I-bonds, right? Yes. This is just as it pertains to I-bonds. So you could give everyone that you know that would be willing to let you do this like $10,000 worth. If you trust them to be able to, to give the money back, right? Uh, you know, I mean, they can go in their account and change the bank account just as easily. <laughs> now, I understand that, you know, when we talk about gifting, this isn't necessarily like if you're gifting to a charity where you have that tax write-off, this is after tax dollars. So even if you're gifting to you know, your spouse, your, your kids and your business, you're still paying taxes, income taxes on that. It's just when you receive that money, the income or the returns on it, then you only pay federal taxes on the returns, not state or local taxes. Kind of like a Roth IRA. 
to me, this is just such a, an interesting like kind of concept. So don't mean to like harp on it too much, but I'm just trying to think through like you mentioned, okay, like you can have other people have their own accounts, you can gift it to them. So what is like setting up an account like? Like just purely you need the social security number and then you set up the account. It's got a username, password. What does setting up an account really mean? Just really the basics, you know, yeah, social security number. They have, you know, some verification as far as email and that kind of thing. Address. But it's very easy. Now, there has been, because these things have become so popular just since May, there have been a few times when the Treasury website has kind of slowed down and people are complaining that it's a little bit slower. Of course, it's a government website. So (laughs) that's going to happen. But yeah, the process is extremely easy. I think it took me about three and a half minutes to set up my own account, another four or five minutes to set up everyone in my family's. So I just want to preface this question with the fact that this is just for educational purposes. I'm asking you for your specific situation, Joseph. When does it make sense to maybe dump the I-bonds or stop investing? Like, is there a certain inflationary inflation point? Like, is it 4%, 5% that you personally, like for you and your family would either get rid of these I-bonds, start investing in something else, or just stop buying? And I guess we can kind of treat those as two different situations. We'll be right back after a quick word from one of our sponsors. Today's sponsor is one I use on a daily basis in my company, Gold City Ventures. That is the sound of a sale in your Shopify store. But did you know that Shopify now also powers in-person selling? Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store or small business. Accept payments, manage inventory, they have everything. Shopify brings together your in-person and online sales business into one source of truth, one dashboard, everything in one place. You know exactly what's going on. And now they have all these customization options. They have plug and play tools that you can integrate with Instagram or TikTok or wherever. You can take your payments by phone or by tablet. Shopify makes it easy. Plus, if you have any questions, their support team is there to help you. I know we have a lot of entrepreneurs in this audience and Shopify POS just breaks down that barrier to accepting payments with your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash fyshow, all lowercase, at shopify.com slash fyshow to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash fyshow. Now back to the show. For myself personally, and I've thought about this, you know, when inflation does start to come down, then that's most likely going to mean the stock market is going up, right? Because that's really been the major hurdle for stocks this year is higher inflation. What does that mean for interest rates and a slowing economy and that kind of thing? So as inflation does start to come down, maybe come down to uh, five, six percent, then I think stocks are going to be looking a lot more attractive, right? And we're already getting a 20% discount to stocks from where they started the year. So, you know, anytime I get that signal where inflation is starting to come down and, and looks like it's going to keep coming down, then I think I would probably prefer stocks. Now, understand, of course, that's that's just because my own risk level is pretty high, my own tolerance for risk. I like investing in stocks. I like that chance of a higher return. For someone that you know is maybe a little bit more risk averse and just wants that guaranteed money, the return on those I-bonds, even at inflation of you know, 5% annualized, that I-bond return is still going to be 55 6%, which again, 6% on a guaranteed investment is, is amazing. Somebody with maybe a little bit more risk tolerance, a lower risk tolerance that, that might want that safety and security might continue to keep buying I-bonds and keep investing in I-bonds. It's really just kind of personal preference and that kind of thing. Eventually, if the Fed is successful and brings inflation back down to 2 or 3%, then I think these things will, will fall out of favor uh, once again, because of course, they're going to be yielding. If inflation does come down to 2 or 3%, they're going to only be yielding maybe 35 or 4%. And I'm just trying to sit here and think about like, okay, these are sold by the government. There are these high rates. Like, why is the government doing this? It seems like this is costing them money. I mean, I guess we are loaning them money 
but like 10% feels like a lot of money to pay out when they could, I don't know, just like print it or, you know, just trying to think through why they're doing this in the first place. Sure. Well, it's again, it's one of those things that if it sounds too good to be true. Yeah. You look at other ways the government borrows money, right? Uh, the treasury tender of treasury rate right now is about 3%. So why would it borrow from its citizens, pay out this 10% on these savings bonds, and then turn around when it could, when it could just as easily borrow the money it needs in those T-bills, those treasury bonds? It's kind of a, a social service kind of thing, I guess. They were created in 1998 to give Main Street investors something to invest in a savings bond that was indexed for inflation. Of course, we didn't need them for about 20 years because inflation was nowhere to be found. But I think if they had to do it over again, maybe the government would change the formula at which it calculates these rates, right? So they wouldn't be paying 10%. In 1998, maybe they never they didn't think that inflation would ever be this high again. But here we are. It does run on a constant formula. They set that formula up in 1998 to determine how much these things paid uh, depending on, on inflation and that fixed rate. And here we are, 9.6%. So I know you mentioned there was a one-year lockup period where you can't touch the money, but is it actually untouchable or is it just like the penalties are so high that you wouldn't want to touch it? Because let's think of a scenario where someone just loads up all their kids with I-bonds, their spouse, maybe their uncles and aunts, they have like a hundred grand in I-bonds and they want to deploy that capital somewhere else. Like the best opportunity in the world pops up three months after they buy those I-bonds. Are they literally unable to touch that money or is there just like crazy penalties for touching it? Sure. It's a good question. Actually, you know, I'm so unfamiliar with savings bonds because these things never pay any kind of great return that I haven't haven't really invested in them. From what I understand, it is a one-year lockup and you can't get your money out. That said, it would be hard to imagine that the government wouldn't have some kind of fail-safe for if somebody was, you know, at death's door and needed that to pay medical bills or to avoid bankruptcy, then there could be some kind of hardship proof that they could provide that would be able to have them take that money out, maybe pay penalties. But again, I haven't seen any kind of indication that that's the case, any kind of indication that it is anything less than a one-year lockup. You mentioned earlier about this formula that was set back in 1998. Mm -hmm. Inflation is always an interesting thing to me, like where the number's coming from, because everything moves so differently, like whether it's gas, a house, a jug of milk, you know, carton of eggs or whatever it is, like everything is moving at completely different rates. So how do they calculate this? Do you know like what goes into this formula? Sure. And you know what? Actually, I just went on the website is actually treasurydirect.gov. I've been saying treasury.gov. So, you know, don't go to treasury.gov.gov. I don't know where it goes. Go to treasurydirect.gov to buy these. And the formula is actually, there is the composite rate, which is that 9.6% we've been talking about, is two times the semi-annual inflation rate times a fixed rate. And then plus the fixed rate times the semi-annual inflation rate, right? And what they use for the semi-annual inflation rate is the CPI numbers, right? There's three inflation numbers you get each month, the CPI, the PPI, and then the PCE. But it's the CPI, that consumer price index that gets the most attention and is most used. So they're taking the semi-annual rate of that. So the six-month annual rate of inflation, using that times this fixed rate that, again, when you buy your bond, it, it comes with a fixed rate. They're multiplying it times the semi-annual rate. And then they're adding that to the fixed rate plus two times the semi-annual rate of inflation. With these current ones, the fixed rate is zero. The semi-annual inflation rate is 4.81%. The calculation of that zero plus two times that semi-annual rate is zero. And then zero plus two times that fixed rate is 9.6 plus zero times that semi-annual rate is zero. It just comes out to 9.62%. So at this moment in time, it's zero, but that could change in the future, right? The fixed rate. They don't really give a whole lot of detail as to how they calculate the fixed rate. 
And again, you know, it's been a tenth of a percent, quarter of a percent. So it's generally very low. It just adjusts up uh, when inflation is so low that these things wouldn't be attractive to anyone, right? That actually might be you know, the best time to buy them. When inflation is so low that these things aren't attractive and that fixed rate is actually higher, then if you were to buy it then, you would then in the future, if inflation did increase again, then you would get that fixed rate times that semi-annual inflation rate. There are potentially people that are even getting more than that 9.6% right now. So it was half a percent back in May, 2019. So if you bought those bonds back in 2019, then right now you'd be receiving about 10.1, 10.2% interest. If my shaky math is correct, there is a potential for a little bit higher, but since that fixed rate is so low, then it really doesn't change things too much. It's just a little bit of a kicker. Yeah. I mean, to me, the interesting part here is that, like you said, you know, they wish they could probably go back and change that formula to make it so that you don't run into these situations. But at the same time, isn't it the government who sets what the CPI is anyway? Like it's kind of like some department in their own organization that's probably setting the rates that's making them have to pay out higher rates. It seems a little incestuous. They're measuring it, sure, but they're not setting it, uh, right? So they're, they're measuring inflation. Now, of course, they've got some, I won't say leeway because they can't change what they measure, but they do have different parts that they measure more than others as far as inflation, right? So rent prices are about a third of the CPI, a third of those consumer price uh, inflation numbers. So if they were to change that when rent prices aren't rising quite as much, then that could effectively bring that down. But of course, then you know the government would kind of lose what little credibility it has as far as some of these numbers, right? Because you know if they're just going to change how they measure things, then how can you rely on what they're saying? So if you have anything more to add about I-bonds, definitely add it now. But I just want to ask, because you're so up on current trends, like I said, you're extremely prolific on YouTube. I mean, seems like you're pumping out almost a video a day or like five a week. It's insane. What are some other, whether it's a financial instrument or just strategies that you're seeing people use that are really effective when we're in such a high inflationary period like now? Sure, sure. Last thing about I-bonds, I just say, just give it a look. You know, It's $10,000. So for a lot of people, it's not uh, something that's going to make or break your investments, whether you do or not, but it's still a great investment. We're going to need that protection for more than a year, I think, on stocks and yeah, 10% on a guaranteed investment. As far as other ideas, other investment vehicles during inflation, really here you, you've got to look at companies that, that do have that pricing power, right? Companies that are selling things that you need to buy. We see a lot of consumer staples, so like uh, food pack packaging, processing, companies like that. And what's interesting is just a year ago, these were the first to get hit by inflation, right? As inflation started increasing, then a lot of these food companies like ConAgra, like Tyson, Kellogg's, right? Uh, we're finding that they had higher food costs going into their products. But since consumers really weren't used to inflation yet, they weren't watching inflation, they weren't ready to pay those higher costs, right? So a lot of the, lot of the consumer staples companies just kind of ate those higher costs. They paid the higher costs without passing those on to consumers and raising their own prices. And a lot of those stocks got hit really hard, right? Because their profits came down because they were eating those inflation costs. Well, now what we see is that since you know consumers are ready for inflation, they know it's coming, and they're willing to pay those higher prices on their products, then those consumer staples companies are able to once again raise their prices and those profit margins are improving. Uh, so we're seeing things like you know, things like Pepsi and Coca-Cola increasing their, their revenue, their sales by seven, eight, nine percent a year, which is an amazing amount of sales growth for a company that sells beverages. And nobody's really drinking more than more Pepsi than they did last year. It's just those prices are rising so much and people are still buying the same amount. So consumer staples are a great way to play this. Since inflation does have so much to do with the stock market crash and, and prices coming down, then it's also helpful to look at 
what stocks have done well in the past recessions, right? So I did some research in the stock market crash of 2007 through 2009 and found some interesting types of companies or some interesting groups that actually did really well. And some of it's intuitive, right? You know, you got your pharmaceutical makers, your drug stocks, where people are going to be buying their heart medication, even if there's a recession or not. You've got the discount stores, so Dollar Tree, Dollar General, things like that, where, you know, if people are pulling back a little bit on their spending, then they're going to go where their dollar goes further, right? At a Dollar Tree or a Dollar Store. And then you've also got surprisingly uh, auto parts stores, right? Like O'Reilly and, and Advanced Auto Parts, where I guess since people are buying fewer new cars, they have to fix up their old ones. So those stocks tend to hold up pretty well in a recession also. Obviously, we've talked a ton about I bonds, but all that is kind of related around inflation, which is kind of the crux of the story, whether we're talking about the stock market or the I bonds. I know today, I think it was the Fed was talking about raising rates again. What does that mean to like the normal person? Uh, you know, sure. when the Fed is talking about raising these rates and like, how does that actually push down inflation? Sure. Well, the, uh, the Fed is uh, the nation's central bank, right? So the banks to the United States, they just have two mandates, two things that they need to do. Uh, they don't care about the stock market. They don't care about who's getting rich or who's not. Their two mandates are one, low inflation. Right, they have to protect the purchasing power of the dollar, so we don't have runaway inflation and prices that go sky high. The other one is low unemployment, right? So a healthy jobs picture. And the thing is, those are kind of a balancing act, right? Because if you have a really strong jobs market like we have now, if we have more jobs available than there are unemployed people who are looking for work, then you're going to have higher wage growth. You know, those few employed people are going to be asking for higher wages. And if the economy is good, those wages are going to grow, right? Well, that pushes up inflation. If people have more money, they're going to spend it, right? So, you know, a low unemployment is kind of tends to push up in inflation. The Fed has to kind of find a happy median there where it is comfortable with inflation. And in the past, uh, you know, over the past decade, it's been right around 2% that the Fed has said, okay, you know what? We can live with 2% inflation. That's not the kind of thing that's going to destroy savers, right? Because if you have high inflation, anybody with cash, anybody living off a fixed income is really hurting because they're getting the same amount of dollars, but those dollars aren't buying quite as much as they used to, right? So they have to control inflation and they've said, you know, right around 2% is okay. So they have to kind of balance that. And what they do here is they control what's called the Fed funds rate. Okay. And this is the rate that banks get paid and pay each other very short-term deposits. Uh, off of that rate is kind of the benchmark that most other interest rates kind of follow, right? So they raise the Fed funds rate. They'll raise the interest rate on this one rate and it tends to raise all the other rates. It'll raise your mortgage rates, right? Mortgages, the 30-year mortgage is up from 3% to the beginning of the year to almost 6% right now, just because the Fed has raised its interest rates at about, uh, about 2% so far this year. And so, of course, as the Fed raises its interest rate, all these other interest rates go up. So the cost of borrowing money, uh, the cost of getting a mortgage, cost of buying a car, all those loans, those loan rates go up, then it tends to slow down the economy, right? Less people are buying a house, businesses borrowing as much because it's so much more expensive. And that slows down the economy. And uh, you know that, that brings down inflation, right? Because people are spending less, there's less demand and less demand for the same amount of products. So that brings prices down or at least keeps prices stable. Okay. But of course, you know, then you've got the problem where we're a slower economy, slower economic growth, that's going to weaken the jobs market, right? So it's going to bring that unemployment rate up. So it's really that, that balancing act that the Fed has to do, you know, something they always call either a soft landing where it can bring, bring interest rates up just enough to bring inflation down, but not hurt the jobs picture too bad, not have unemployment skyrocket and not send us into a recession. Or a hard landing where it just raises it raises interest rates too fast, kills the econ kills economic growth. We go into a recession and the unemployment rate rises very much faster. 
I do want to hop back to just stocks in general for a second, because you mentioned a lot of these kind of inflation protected stocks, like the consumer staples, the things that people need no matter what's happening in the economy. But Justin and myself and a lot of our listeners, we're just like straight indexers. We don't want to mess with individual stocks. You know, we don't want to do any stock picking and make guesses like, is this a consumer staple? Or are they still going to be doing all right? Are there any sure. index funds that maybe track some of these types of companies that you recommend people invest in? Mm-hmm. Sure. There are funds that just cover those sectors, right? So I know the iShares or Spider uh, iShares has uh, funds that, that attract the sectors. So the consumer staple sector is actually the XLP. Okay. And that's going to be, that's going to include all of the consumer staple stocks in the S&P 500. Can't tell you, I think there's maybe about 40 or 50 stocks in that, uh, you know, in that universe. So in that, in that index and in that fund. Uh, and, and of course, that's going to just hold all of those. The healthcare sector fund is the XLV. So that's going to own all the healthcare stocks in the, uh, you know, in the healthcare sector. Now, now understand with that, you're getting not just the drug makers, which are, are fairly safe, but also biotech stocks, which tend to be a little bit growthier, more at risk. So healthcare tends to rise and fall a little bit more. Uh, as far as just drug makers, there is an ETF or a fund that just tracks pharmaceutical companies. So just those drug makers, that would be something like the XPH, which is the Spider S&P Pharmaceuticals ETF. So that just holds those drug makers and the large ones. You know, the S&P 500 is the 500 largest companies in the United States. So any of these based off of that or a portion of that at the sectors are going to be those largest companies like Johnson & Johnson, right? Like Merck, like Pfizer. There's another one, the XLU, ticker XLU, which is the utilities sector that owns all the stocks in the S&P 500 are that gas and electric, that water, water utilities, things like that. So one thing I wanted to ask you, because I just think it's an interesting kind of debate. Like I see a lot of people freaking out about inflation, how high it is, and they're, they're very upset about it. I think it's more of like a you know, really micro look into like what's going on right now. But if we zoom out a little bit, you know, I'm, I'm seeing there were so many years of just incredibly low inflation. So what's your opinion? Do you think it's more shocking like how high inflation is or more shocking that it was so low for so long? Well, it was definitely shocking how low it stayed and you know how low rates were and and how good the economy was growing and the fact that we still had this low of inflation. And it just it really helps the argument that yes, after this initial bout of, of really high inflation, it will come back down because we still have some of those demographic forces that we're feeding into low inflation. We still have uh, the productivity changes and technological advances that we're feeding into low inflation. So, and that should come back. The problem is that there are other factors that are going to be more persistent. There are factors like uh, kind of deglobalization, right? The fact that and there are other factors that lead us to believe that inflation will be more persistent, will last longer, will be higher. Other factors like deglobalization, right? Which during the pandemic, we saw that those supply chains that we had set up all around the world for, for cheap parts out of Asia and, and that kind of thing could be broken. We couldn't get the Kellogg's Fruit Loops when we wanted them. So we're starting to bring more manufacturing into, uh, you know, into the US and into North America, which is more convenient, but it is a little bit more expensive. So that is going to raise prices for a lot of things and, and keep that inflation going. There's also the fact that rent prices just haven't kept up with house prices, right? Over the last two years, house prices have gone up something like 30 or 40% in most, most areas. And since landlords weren't able to evict people, they were really kind of scared about raising their rent prices. So the rent prices really kind of stayed flat for about a year and a half and are just now starting to head up. Well, those have to catch up with house prices, of course, because you know it's a market environment. 
So over the next year or two years, as those rent prices continually catch up with where housing prices are, then that is going to be a big factor to keeping inflation higher than, than I think a lot of economists and the Fed really believe. Like I said, the rent is about a third of the consumer price index. So the fact that that is going to be persistently increasing, I think is going to keep inflation much higher than expected. Which is a great thing for things like I-bonds. For I-bond users, yep. Just want to thank you again for coming on the show today, Joseph. Not only do we talk about I-bonds for like 25 minutes, I don't know if there were many other guests who could just basically take a beating from me adjusted, just asking every question under the sun. But we also got into some other kind of inflationary hedge topics. So for those who are interested in all that you're teaching and want to follow along, where is the best place or places for them to do that? Well, I, I'd love for everybody to come by uh, Let's Talk Money, the channel there on YouTube. Join the community. Like I said, I love that face-to-face -face feel we get from video. And uh, we've also got a private Facebook group that's attached to that, that, that we start some great conversations with. I've got a blog called mystockmarketbasics.com, which is a little bit more basic investing and that, those kinds of ideas that uh, you know, if you'd rather read than uh, watch a video, then there's always that. Well, like Cody said, Joseph, thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, this is a topic that I'd seen popping up everywhere and just knew we had to have somebody on. And I really appreciate your approach of being much more like fundamentally sound. And like you said, not just making shapes out of charts and trying to see where it lands. Sure. This is my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to another episode of The Fi Show. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us, the best way to do that is to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Share this with a friend. And also, don't forget, you can find 200 plus episodes and all the information you'd ever want to have about these episodes over at thefyshow.com. Also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button because that way, every Wednesday, you can have our latest episode delivered straight to your phone. Until next time. Hey, real quick, before you go, I just want to remind you that I have made my personal like budget and net worth tracking spreadsheet available, the very same one that I use to track my net worth from $38,000 to over $1.2 million, available for free on our website at thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet. So you can go download that today. That's thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet.